Well, stand with me as we turn in God's Word, which is indeed a light and lamp unto us, and you'll find this morning's text in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, as we want to look at verse 16 through 33 together, which represents the conclusion to Jesus' famous upper room discourse that has occupied us for the last several weeks. So let me pick up in that reading as Jesus is speaking to the disciples in verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter, and then I'll pray and we'll continue together. So listen once again as the Lord does speak to you through His Word. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of His disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you won't see me, and again a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day you will ask in my name, but I do not say that you will ask that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. As disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we do ask this morning that your steadfast love would come to us, that your salvation would greet us according to your promise. Our soul does long for your grace. Give us joy and peace in your word, we pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. One of... The peculiar joys and delights I have in ordinary weeks is 
meeting other pastors in the area. Sometimes these pastors are in larger churches, in smaller churches. There's something of a camaraderie and company that belongs to pastors in gospel ministry together. And I love to get to know their stories and hear about the Lord's work in their church. It's work that often comes through through trial and through suffering, through experiences of sorrow. And not long ago, I was meeting with a pastor in the nearby area. And this pastor actually has been a friend of mine for something like 10 years now. And he, he's, he's just a marvelous preacher. And he's a faithful shepherd. He's an earnest and intentional pastor. And I noticed about halfway through the meeting, or at least the lunchtime, that he seemed rather in a hurry to leave and that was unusual for him. And so at some point, I kind of asked him, hey, you have a meeting after lunch that you got to get to. And he said, no, actually, I want to take you to uh, this used bookshop that's around the corner. Now, that might sound out odd to you, but you need to know that just as kids are in candy stores, pastors are in bookshops. And so we quickly ended lunch, and we went to this bookshop around the corner, and it was perhaps the most marvelous one I've ever been in. You know, you got looked in these gigantic rooms, upstairs, downstairs, in a basement, actually, and it seemed as though every shelf was going to collapse in on itself. Such was the bulging weight of the books, and uh, we proceeded to take no small amount of time tarrying in that place because it was hard to figure out, you know, what exactly we wanted to take with us along the way. And the only reason I tell you that is because we come to a text today where Christians throughout the centuries have loved to tarry. And I want you to see this morning that they have loved to tarry here. And I want us even to tarry here this morning because Jesus calls us to take things from him. Because if you've been with us in recent weeks, you've heard Jesus as he's talked to these disciples in what we refer to as the upper room discourse, that sacred table talk over that Passover meal, the night when he was going to be betrayed. He continually was instructing them of those most important things that belonged to their experience, to their minds and hearts, as he was soon getting ready to depart and, and leave them. And we heard last week that his pending departure which was going to come quite soon, it was actually to their advantage. Because you might remember, he said, if I don't leave you, if I don't depart, the Comforter's not going to come. And when the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, arrives, he's going to convict the world of, of sin, righteousness, and, and judgment. And the Comforter also will bring you into clarity regarding me. And I want you to see, even from where we left off last week, it was a clarity that involved taking something from Jesus. Because if you look at verse 14 of chapter 16, Jesus simply said of the Holy Spirit, He will glorify me, and He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So there's this indicative-like reality that belongs to taking from Jesus, that the Spirit's delight is to take what is true about Jesus and make sure you understand it, to take what is right about Jesus and make sure you receive it. It's this declaration, and what's amazing in many ways, at least in my mind, is when we come to this back part of John chapter 16, Jesus isn't simply saying the Holy Spirit will take what is mine and give it to you. He actually utters a command to people like you and me, of course, the disciples originally, he says, take from me. 
There's a greatness, there's a glory, there's even a grace, isn't there, in a Savior who can summon people like you, sinners, lost and wandering sheep, come and take from me. That's really what he says in this final concluding word. If you'll notice again, verse 33 of chapter 16, what's that last command, the way in which his sermon concludes? Take heart, I have overcome the world. So I want you to understand along the way this morning why it is that Jesus can assure his disciples that they can take heart. Why they must even take heart. That simple idea that I have for us along the way this morning in our text is take heart in Jesus Christ. Uh, the, The original word in the Greek for take heart, it's something that you can render Uh, Literally, it kind of has this heat-inducing quality to it because it speaks kind of more directly about bolstering and and burning. So you could even translate that phrase, take heart, as to radiate warm confidence. And Jesus is inviting us today to radiate that confidence, confidence that we receive in him. So you'll notice again, if you just glance down at the text in front of us, it's got two simple parts. And I want you to see in the first half how it encourages us, it invites you to take his joy, and the second half is take his peace. So what does it mean to take heart in Jesus Christ today? Take his joy and take his peace. So take his joy, notice we again pick up the conversation in many ways, mid-conversation, verse 16, he says, a little while you disciples will see me no longer, and again a little while you will see me. And it may sound as confusing to your ears as it did initially to those disciples, what one old pastor referred to as Jesus' two little whiles. Because students, it's simply him saying, hey, soon you're going to not see me, and soon you are going to see me. And you might understand even how that original hearing of such a word would be kind of confusing. You know, kids, if your parents came along the way this day and said, hey, soon you're not going to see me, and soon you are going to see me. You probably would be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And you'll notice that's exactly what happens with the disciples. What they say at the end of verse 18, we don't know what he's talking about. But it's striking to me the way in which that conversation must have happened around the table. Of course, it's a small room. At this point, there's only 12 of them around the table as best we understand it. And they don't want to ask Jesus directly, Jesus, what are you talking about? These two little whiles. You know, they're, they're mumbling under their breath. They're perhaps looking along the way, trying to catch each other's glance with, or catch each other's eyes with a glance, and maybe they're mouthing the words, what is he talking about? As though Jesus can't see what's going on directly in front of him, that he doesn't understand what's going on directly in front of him. But you might find some sympathy and even conviction with the disciples there for how often it is that the Lord speaks something, and rather than ask him, what does that mean? You just say to someone else, I have no idea what he's talking about. But you won't ask directly. It's like you know, a student in a math class learning algebra gives a formula. Uh, the teacher says, do you understand what I'm saying? And the class says, yeah, well, we understand what you're saying. But you can see across the face, no one understands what the teacher is saying. What would be much better is, we don't understand what you're saying. You know, students, it's a wonderful reminder even from this passage today for your very walk in Christ, your life in Christ, is to recognize how pride 
so often wars against clarity that if you don't slay that serpent of pride and arrogance within your heart, you'll never grow into the clarity of Scripture, the clarity of, of who Jesus is. Clarity towards Christ depends utterly upon humility. It would have been much better, wouldn't it, if the disciples said, Lord, we don't know what you're talking about. Because, of course, he knows that's exactly what's going on. Notice what happens in verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said, is this what you were asking among yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, you will see me. Now, Jesus, in his divine knowledge and understanding, he always knows, doesn't he, our confusion that we don't want to confess. He knows the very heart that we don't want to unfold to him. And there's an invitation here, too, even in this knowledge of our Savior, that you, you go to him with that which you need. You go to him with what you desire because he knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly what you desire. So he's going to give them clarity along the way. Notice he begins in verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, if you pause right there, children, you want to recognize whenever in John's gospel, especially you hear Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you. It's his way of saying, pay attention. This is vital. You can stake your life on what I'm getting ready to say. I've always found it um, interesting, even that John's gospel is the only gospel in the New Testament where Jesus says, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you. Happens 25 times in this gospel. What is coming in our text is the 23rd and 24th occasion of him saying, truly, truly, I say to you. You'll see how verse 20 continues. He says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Now, if you pause right there, you want to ask, before he continues on in the text, why is it that the world is getting ready to rejoice? He doesn't actually unfold it directly, but it's clear contextually they're getting ready to rejoice because Jesus is only hours away from dying. Now, if you glance back up to verse 17, you'll notice the problem the disciples were having was not merely with the two little whiles, but also because Jesus kept talking about going to the Father. Of course, we understand his crucifixion and resurrection, his pending ascension is the way in which he's going to go to the Father. You know, it causes me to think of this time where a British economist was once asked to give his examination and predictions about the coming economy in a new year. And he simply said to the newspaper journalist, he said, the significance of Christmas won't become clear until Easter. And he, of course, was speaking about the world of economics, that the prophets that came to the country during the Christmas season, you know, it would take a few months to figure out what kind of economic ramifications came from those things. But as sometimes people often do, they spoke, he spoke much truer words, much more theological truth than he realized, that the significance of Christmas isn't made clear until you understand what happens at, at Easter. Because what's belonging to the disciples' confusion all throughout this upper room discourse is they cannot comprehend. It just can't get through to them. And it's not the first time that they cannot comprehend a Savior King who is getting ready to die. They thought the Savior King, the Messiah, would arrive and then the kingdom, the, the new power belonging to Israel would be ushered in immediately, once and for all. But they didn't have an idea about a Savior who would die 
and therefore a Savior over whom the world would rejoice. He says, you are going to weep, you are going to lament, the world is going to rejoice. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? The very next day, Jesus is crucified. They weep, they lament, the world rejoices. Government authorities, civil leaders, religious powers are saying good riddance to this troubler in Israel. But the good news that does belong to Jesus' teaching comes, you'll notice at the end of verse 20, he says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And we sang that truth, didn't we, earlier from Psalm chapter 30. There's this uh, rich reality of knowing the Lord that belongs throughout the Old Testament, where Old Testament writers and prophets would revel in the fact that God turns sorrow into joy. That, that weeping The dawning of the morning becomes dancing. You'll find it in Psalms. You'll find it in Isaiah. You'll find it even in the prophet Jeremiah. In fact, you may know that the Jewish people by this time in their religious history, they had an annual feast, the Feast of Purim. It's talked about in the book of Esther. That is nothing more, according to Esther chapter 9, of a feast where they remember that God turned their sorrow into joy. That the horror of the potential Holocaust is now a holiday of remembrance because happiness came. Jesus is assuring them that the world is going to fall upon you with hatred because it's going to fall upon me with hatred. But happiness belongs to your life. So you'll see, he says in verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. If you understand what Jesus is saying there, he's, he's referring to his resurrection. He's saying, I will see you again. So the disciples' sorrow is going to be short-lived, barely three days long, isn't it? This weeping lament, this sorrow that's going to strike them, that he assures them is going to arrive, he says, just as quickly almost as it arrives, it's going to disappear. Because you're going to see me again. I wonder if you might say, well, yeah, I mean... I'm living in a season of sorrow right now, and I too would see that sorrow become joy if I too could see Jesus. But the fullness of Scripture tells us that by His Word and Spirit, Jesus is with us now. They had to wait three days for the resurrection to arrive. They had to wait three days for the sorrow to become joy. But Jesus says, of course, in the Word, the resurrection has happened That resurrection that announces the renewal of all things, God's victory, the utter certainty of faith, hope, and love, that resurrection truth is now. Now, sorrow becomes joy for God's people. I wonder if you've ever thought it a spiritual tragedy to see so many Christians living as though someone stole their joy. I'm not talking, of course, about a Christian life in which a smile is permanently plastered on your face. Tears come. Weeping will arrive. Sorrow will strike. But mature Christians know that it's through that sorrow, it's through that weeping, that God brings joy. Because that's exactly what he says, if you'll notice, in verse 21. He says, when a woman is giving birth... She has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish 
for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Jesus, instead of turning their attention to those biblical truths in the Old Testament about sorrow becoming joy, he, he turns their attention to a natural illustration. He's saying, guys, just, just think about the way this works with a pregnant mother. The contractions arrive, and what thus comes? Pain. Genuine, heart-wrenching, soul-clenching, body pain. But if you know, and many of you mothers, of course, know this so acutely, don't you, that once that baby arrives, what happens? People start taking pictures of the baby with the mother smiling, as though just a few seconds before she wasn't in the midst of this incredible pain. And she was, but now she's not. Why? The child has arrived. And I think what Jesus is even saying here is actually something rather significant when it comes to our life of joy. He's saying that joy coming from pain is not merely a chronological reality. And what I mean by that, students, is he's saying your pain will turn into joy, like there's a chronology attached to it, one than the other. Actually, the fullness of God's Word tells us it's not just merely a chronological reality. There is a causal reality that pain produces joy. Have you ever considered how that may have worked out in your life more than you have realized to this point? That suffering has come, that that sorrow has arrived, and then maybe with the help of the Spirit and the hindsight of wisdom, you look back on that season of difficulty and you realize, you know, without that pain, without that trouble, how would I have come to know so intimately that God's promises are true? That he doesn't forsake his suffering people? That his supply and riches of grace can comfort even the most anguished heart? He says, no one will take your joy. Of course, the mature Christian understands, like the Apostle Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So I'm not saying again that a smile is to be plastered upon your faces, but I am saying again that it is a spiritual tragedy when Christians act as though someone has stolen their joy. Because Jesus says that doesn't happen. No one, nothing can take your joy. Maybe your life is, for the last few weeks, months, maybe even years, been one in which a dark and dour countenance has been normal. Jesus says it ought not to be. Because you know the resurrection has arrived. You know the clarity about who I am. You know what I'm doing in your life. No one can take your joy. Just ask me for it. Take my joy. That's what he says. Notice verse 24 at the end. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Maybe you simply today need to ask, Lord, fill up my joy. So take his joy. Take heart in Jesus Christ. Number two, take his peace. Because he's going to continue in verse 25 through 33 as the upper room discourse reaches its conclusion. He's going to try to give that clarity that the disciples don't have. And because Jesus, of course, is a perfect preacher, he understands when the metaphors, when the analogies aren't getting through. So you'll see what he says in verse 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Students, you can think about those figures of speech that he just used in the last few paragraphs when he wanted to talk about union and communion with him. He talked about vines and branches. He just talked about sorrow turning into joy. He talked about a mother in, in childbirth. 
And of course, they're rejoicing internally that he's not going to speak to them anymore in, in figures of speech. And if you want to kind of cut straight to the point, look at what he says in verse 28. He says to them, I came from the Father, I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And it feels like at long last, finally, the disciples understand what Jesus is saying because notice their response, verse 29 and 30. They say, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And you might think after hearing them say that, they would receive a comforting word from Jesus, an assuring word that, yes, brothers, finally you've understood the the essential point of what I've been trying to tell you all the way across this sacred table talk. But what you'll notice is actually Jesus responds by saying, you you still don't get it. You you still don't understand. Because you see the question he asks in verse 31, do you now believe It's kind of hard to capture it in English, but the way in which the original setting and even language is kind of talking about it, we put the accent more on a tone of like, oh, now you believe? Now, he said in the previous verses, if you kind of glance back to what he mentioned in verse 23, he's talking about a day coming when they are going to ask of the Father because they know this truth finally at last about who Jesus is and what he must do on behalf of of sinners. And that day, of course, hasn't come yet. And so he's saying, oh really? Now you believe? He wants to pop their inflated balloon of of self-confidence. Notice verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. He says, indeed it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. And just as it's true, the next day, Good Friday, the world rejoices over Jesus' crucifixion. What's also true is the disciples leave Jesus, don't they? They're like sheep scattered from the shepherd. Why? Because when he's arrested, they don't understand still what is going to happen to Jesus. Why the crucifixion must happen to Jesus. They're going to leave him all alone. Even men like Peter, who are so self-confident that he would never leave the Savior. But Jesus rejoices, you'll notice, in the reality. He's not really alone. Verse 32 ends, Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. You know, If you've walked through this Gospel of John for the nine months or so that we've been studying of it, certainly in recent months where we've been here in the Upper Room Discourse, maybe you've noticed how often Jesus is teaching about the Father, how often Jesus' thoughts evidently race to the Father. By my count, 37 times in this Gospel, he's emphasizing a glorious Gospel of a Father in Heaven, who of course is Jesus' Father, even in commenting on this part of John's Gospel An old preacher named J.C. Ryle said, There are few subjects of which men know so little in reality as the character and attributes of God the Father. I hope that couldn't be said to be true of you. There are few things about which you know so little 
as the characteristics and attributes of the Father. Ryle continues by saying, No one who has ever learned of Christ so deeply as the man who is ever drawing nearer to the Father through the Son, ever feeling more childlike confidence in Him, ever understanding more thoroughly that in Christ Jesus, God is not an angry judge, but a loving Father. And if you glance back up to verse 27, that's exactly what Jesus emphasized. He says, The Father Himself loves you because you have loved me. Jesus is saying that, of course, you're not going to really leave me totally alone because the inseparable reality of the Trinity is that Jesus Christ is never alone. And that's part of the gospel that we preach true, or too, isn't it? That no true Christian is ever left alone. You could sit in here today and feel to the depths of your soul that you have been left alone. Family and friends have forsaken you. Co-workers and classmates have disappeared from your life. There seems to be that there's no one who cares for you. And Jesus is reminding you that if you belong to him, that if you've been united to him by faith, you've likewise been united to a father who loves you, who always is watching over you, who is always caring for you, who is always providing for you. And that provision that even Jesus wants to leave with his disciples is one of peace. Notice verse 33. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There, there are texts. I think you realize this when you get older. There are texts, and then there are texts. You know, there are truths. And then there are truths. Chapter 16, verse 33 of John's Gospel is one such text and truth. In this world, you will have tribulation. It is a sobering thought. It is a realistic reality that Jesus assures his disciples and you, if you belong to him, about. In this world, you will have trial. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, he says, like a fire of comfort and courage burning within your soul. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Take my peace in the midst of all the persecution. Take my peace in the midst of the soul-filled sorrow. True Christians not just know the joy that no one can take from them. True believers also have that peace that no one can steal from them. Surely it's a warning, isn't it, to those of you that might be in here today and you wouldn't say that you're a Christian, you wouldn't say that you actually have come to Jesus Christ. Later texts in the New Testament would say, therefore you have no peace. Why is it in the midst of this world's tribulation and trouble, you feel as though you're the ship being rocked at sea, the waves of persecution and problems are threatening to turn you over, and actually in your own life it's turned you over constantly. Well, you have no anchor for your soul. A sure and steadfast anchor whose name is Jesus Christ who invites you today to take heart, to take his joy, to take his peace. Last summer, our family, as many of you know, were on sabbatical for a number of months, and we spent a number of weeks up in the Bitterroot Mountains of Montana, which meant a number of hikes in the mountains and 
And if you're anything like me, I think there are a few things so wonderful in this world as a mountain hike on a sunny day. And so when our family goes on these hikes, there's this kind of twin reality that strikes my heart. Exhilaration and trepidation. Exhilaration because it's a mountain hike. Trepidation because it's my children going on the mountain hike. It seems like every time we do such a hike, we have a young child that thinks there's no climb. They ought not try to conquer. And when you're up in mountains very high, the climbs they ought not to conquer are often accompanied by a rather sharp cliff. And one of our sons, our youngest, Boston Charles, is currently in that stage where he thinks he can conquer every single climb. And he often does conquer every single climb. But that doesn't mean he should be conquering every single climb. And so when we're on these hikes, as we were that day, I can recall from last summer, I'm kind of leading along the way, keeping my eyes out from where little feet might slip down to dangerous areas. And when we get there, I kind of race to wherever Boston is and say three simple words. Take my hand. Hold my hand. I want to protect you. I want to make sure you're okay. And I want you to see here, even in this passage, isn't Jesus doing the exact same thing for his beloved disciples? Problems are coming, danger is on the way. Take my hand. Hold my hand. And what I want to do at the very end here is just ask and answer simply the question of how do we do that? Yes, he invites you to take his joy. Yes, he invites you to take his peace. But how is it that you take hold of Jesus? The text is going to answer that in two simple ways. Let's think about these as we come to the end. The first is take hold of him by prayer. I skipped over it for good reason because it's worth meditating on at the end. But prayer permeates the passage. Notice verse 23 and 24 once again. He says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. And you see, he says more about prayer in verse 26 and 27. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. What he's saying, of course, is it's through Jesus that we have access to the Father in prayer. And such is the communion that we have with our triune God, that when we we come to the Father in prayer, it's not as though Jesus has to ask on our behalf to convince the Father to listen to us. That's what he means when he says, I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. He loves you. He loves to listen to his children. He loves to receive the requests of his people. So ask, he says, that your joy may be full. You can take it as a true spiritual maxim for your Christian discipleship. No prayer, no peace. Small prayer, small joy. You might understand even this very day that the joy and peace that your heart so desperately needs is not there because you have not asked. And he invites you, take hold of me. Take hold of a father who loves you by asking in prayer. Secondly, we take hold of him by faith. Because you see how he continues in verse 27. He says, The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. If you understand the 
fullness of what Jesus is saying there. Of course, it's not as though the Father only loves you once you loved me. The same author of this gospel would say later in one of his epistles that we love him because he first loved us. But they show forth, these disciples do, these sinful, confused men show forth their love because they believe in Jesus. So maybe that question of verse 31 is what really needs to prick your conscience and even confront your heart today. Do you believe? Not just take hold of Christ by prayer. Take, take hold of him by faith. Take hold of him by faith and you can take heart in the midst of all pain. You can take joy in the midst of all sorrow. You can take peace in the midst of all tribulation because he has overcome the world. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us that joy and peace that's ours in Christ Jesus, that you would help us to know his loving invitation this day to take heart, that you would encourage us in the very same. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.